if you have your Bibles um, with you, open them to Acts chapter 4. We're in verses 131. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, then we do always have the text on the screen. We're going through Acts, um, and, uh, and we're, we're going to be in Acts for a little while. Uh, but before we get started, let's pray together. God, I, I pray that your word would speak to us this morning, that we would hear the message, that it would give us courage and encouragement, that it would bring uh, conviction as well as comfort. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So um, I actually visited Denver for the first time back in 1996. Uh, it was kind of a big day for me. Our, uh, the, the band I was in, it was one of our first shows outside of Southern California, and in this particular day, we were playing at like this all-day punk show at the Fillmore. And, uh, and there were some of the bands that I grew up like idolizing there, like the Bouncing Souls. No. Okay. The Descendants? Okay, some people have heard of The Descendants. That's like my all-time favorite, right? And we were going to be playing like third out of eight. And it was sold out, like 4,000 punk rockers in the Fillmore at Stank. And uh, it was pretty intimidating. I was maybe 19 at the time. And the band that went on before us got spat on. So I was like, oh man, this could get ugly and it could get ugly fast. And so we start playing and everything's going good. Like people are liking us, cheering, not spitting, and, and all of those things. I was like, oh, this is, my, my heroes are backstage. They're, they're maybe seeing how awesome we are. But here's the thing is that, um, like for all of us, like we were, we were all Christians in the band, and, and at, every, at every show, like after the third song, we'd say a little something about like, hey, I want you to know we're the Supertones, and we play because we love Jesus, right? And it started to come to that point, and I started to get really intimidated looking out at all those punk rockers who were loving us to this point, and I would be lying to you if I said I wanted to just start the fourth song and not say anything. Now, I don't think that anybody has to like preach at a concert or anything like that, but we did it at all our other shows and to not do it here would be totally chicken. Do you agree? Yes. So, comes to that point and I'm like, hey everybody, we're the Superdones. Just want you to know we play because we love Jesus. Boo! Just merciless booing. 4,000 people flipping us off, throwing things at us in the whole nine yards. And I was like, oh no, what if the descendants are watching? <laughs> Look, there, there are going to be moments. Like following Jesus, one of the standard features of following Jesus is opposition. This is a normal part of the Christian life. There's going to be moments where staying silent is a whole lot easier. Just letting things go by and, and, and succumbing to the opposition, whatever it's, it's, it's tempting you to do, is a lot easier than staying faithful. I still think that that moment would have been a lot easier if I had stayed silent. And that's a little thing, you know, like we all lived Globally speaking, it's, it's not that way, is it? There, there's a lot of nations in the world right now where following Jesus, like if you, if you share the gospel with someone in India, you could be arrested in many states. 
you could be jailed for that. That's a crime. For, for, for many nations, like in Sri Lanka or Nigeria, to worship in public is to, is to become a target for a bomb through the window. Right? The opposition has been and continues to be a, a, a standard part of following Jesus in our own nation. When, when believers have stood up for human rights, there has been quite a, a great deal of opposition. Ask Cesar Chavez. Read that story. See how following Jesus faithfully in that situation meant facing all kinds of opposition. Now, we have a society where we're very proud of our religious freedoms, and I'm very glad to live in a society like that, but there are sort of insidious examples of opposition that, that kind of encourage you to stay silent, to keep it to yourself. You're talking to a friend, and that, that, that conversation takes a spiritual turn. Perhaps it's evident they're searching, and clearly you have an opening to, to perhaps share the gospel, but, but there's also in your mind, what if they get offended if I say something about Jesus? What if that kind of breaks the friendship? It's a lot easier just to let that moment go by. For some of you, you work in fields, you work in careers, where if someone found out what you believe, your credibility could be shot. It could be the end of your career or the marginalization of your career. It could get you rejected. It could get you mocked. For some of you, you may be asked to sign a statement at your work, you know, some sort of code that your conscience won't let you. What do you do? It's a lot easier just to sign it and move along. It's a lot easier not to deal with the opposition. So what does God's word tell us, though? What do we do when we face opposition? Those, those times when, when we're following Jesus and, and we face opposition and it's a lot easier just to be quiet, just a lot easier to let it go. Well, in Acts chapter 4, we see the first opposition to the early church. Take a look with me at, at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So, the, the text just before this, Peter and John healed a guy. And then they were in the temple and they started preaching in the temple. They started preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And, people, you know, everything's fine until the heavies show up. Now, who are these guys that we're seeing in verse 1? The captain of the temple, the priests, and the Sadducees. In the, ancient, in the first century world of, of Palestine and Jerusalem, you had basically two teams. Okay, you had the, the Pharisee and scribe team who were out in the synagogues, and then you had the, the aristocratic team that were in the temple. Okay, these were the, the, the priests, the high priest especially. The captain of the guard, he was kind of the, in the temple precincts, he would have like a little, a little um, sort of like a royal guard. This was the second in command of the high priest. And, um, and 
in fact, many people who were captain of the guard became high priests later. It was like the number two guy in Jerusalem. And the Sadducees, they were, they were part of the priest team, right? The people who, people who were collaborating with the Roman occupiers. Okay, these were the people who were getting rich and occupying positions of privilege in Jerusalem because of Rome. So they liked things the way it was, and anybody coming along and rocking the boat with talk of a Messiah <laughs> or resurrection was quite unwelcome. And so they arrest them. But look at, look at the point Luke makes in, in verse 4. It says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So, opposition comes. They get arrested. Fun's over, guys. But what? But five, we don't know if that's 5,000 total Christians with the, the people who believed when they heard the gospel there or if 5,000 people in the temple came. It doesn't matter. The point is, you can arrest the preacher, but you can't arrest the gospel, right? That God is not hindered by this opposition. It's like, great, you arrested my guys. Now 5,000 people have come to believe. Good job. God is not hindered by opposition. God is not hindered by opposition. A couple of years ago in the city of Chengdu, China, there was a, a small church that was having Sunday school when suddenly the police burst in and arrested the entire church. Their crime was insisting on this thing called human rights and saying crazy things like the Communist Party is not God, only God is God. And they were just one of hundreds of churches that have been shut down in the last few years as the Communist Party is trying to oppose the church. So they lost their building, they lost their right to meet, and they were all arrested. And they didn't stop. They just went underground along with all the other churches. And this has actually been, when you look at China, this is a great example of how God is not hindered by opposition. The, the, Chinese, uh, the Communist Chinese Party has been trying to oppose and eradicate the church since they took power. Right? Mao Zedong, under the Cultural Revolution, tried to like, literally kill everybody. And there's been decades and decades of opposition. You know what the result's been? There's at least 60 million Christ followers in China at this point. All that opposition from one of the most potent governments in the world. And what's it, what's it wrought? It, God's, God's kingdom is still going forward there. God is not hindered by opposition. One of the things that tempts us into silence is thinking that we're kind of in control. right? Like, oh, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to say anything here because then I'm going to lose my position in this company, right? Like if I, if I say something about Jesus here, I could sever this relationship. And then, then they'll never hear the gospel as if it's up to us. But God is going to accomplish his plan even if we face opposition. God is not hindered by opposition, but there's a, another reason it's a lot easier to stay silent. And it's that we feel inadequate. You know, it's like, it's like when God called Moses, 
If anybody's ever read the book of Exodus, God calls Moses. We all think Moses jumps right to split in the Red Sea. And, and when it started, God calls Moses. He's like, Moses, you're, you're, you're going to be my instrument to like, deliver our people out of bondage. And you know what Moses says? He says, you don't want that. He says, God, no, you made a mistake. I can't do that. People won't listen to me. And God says, no, no, really, I'm going to use you. Don't worry, I'll be with you. He literally says this. He says, but I stutter. I'm a stammerer. Who's going to follow a stammer, stammerer? I just did. <laughs> and then God says, no, no, I, I, don't worry. I made the tongue. I made the mouth. I, I'll take care of it. And Moses doesn't listen. He says, send someone else. He feels completely unqualified. And guess what he is? And guess what? You are and I am. But what we see here is that, is that with, when God is working through you, it, that, that really doesn't matter. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, this is the Sanhedrin. This is the, the council in Jerusalem. Right? This is the, the local power base. These, uh, um, okay, I always go too far with the history stuff, but here you go. So this, this particular Sanhedrin, a generation before Herod the Great had stacked it with his people. Right? So these are like pro-Roman, anti-revolutionary, uh, very, very aristocratic dominated Sanhedrin, right? You, you picture in who these folks are. They're the most educated. They're the most wealthy, right? These are the most well-known and august figures in your society. And I might add, it is the same group of people who conspired to have Jesus crucified, okay? Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, could we just try and put ourselves in Peter and John's shoes right now? So you would have had an assembly hall of some kind with the raised seats, so they're above you. You're looking at people who are well-respected, are well-educated, are very powerful, and they're looking down at you. And your life is quite literally on the line. You saw what happened to Jesus. It could happen to you. Look, what, look how Peter answers. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all that you and that all of you and to all the people of Israel that, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now this is really clever. So Peter, Peter points to the fact that they are being accused of a good deed. It was customary that you would get rewarded for a good deed. And so he slips the charges. He says, what are we on trial for, healing a guy? Is that what you're upset about? So, so that's thinking on your feet. And then he actually reverses the charges. He says, it's, the, it's Jesus who you guys crucified. In verse 11, he goes on to say, um, 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So first he slips the charges, saying, yeah, we did a good deed. Do you want to send us to jail for that? And then he reverses the charges. By the way, you crucified an innocent man. Remember that a couple months ago? And then look what he does. In verse 12, he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It seems like they just had the gospel shared with them, right? Jesus rose from the dead, and there's salvation in his name alone. I don't know that I'd be able to get a sentence out in that situation, but Peter somehow, some way, uh, uh, comes up with this incredible dispense on the spot. Look at verses 13 and 14. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So you imagine Peter, you know, comes out with this defense. Hey, you want to put us on trial for healing a guy? That's your business. Um, by the way, you crucified an innocent man, and there's salvation in his name for you. He, he does what? He, they're speechless. These are not the dudes to be speechless. These are priests. These are aristocrats. These are people who talk and others listen. What are they? Uh, hush in the room. How did Peter do this? Does anybody remember what it said in verse 8? Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, in the, before Jesus was crucified, he said, you're going to get dragged in front of magistrates. You're going to get dragged in front of governors. Don't worry about what to say. I'll give you the words to say. That's what's happening here. God empowers his people in opposition. God empowers his people in opposition. You feel unqualified. You don't feel bold enough. You don't feel courageous enough. You don't feel like you're able to give an answer when you face opposition. It's easier just to stay silent because I'm not even really sure what to say or what to do. Guess what? You come to a moment of opposition. The same Holy Spirit that, that filled Peter on this day in front of the Sanhedrin dwells in us as well. God empowers his people in opposition. But perhaps more than anything, the thing that, that makes it so much easier just to, just to yield to the pressure, just to succumb to opposition, is, is the fear of the consequences. Because choosing to be faithful can also mean choosing to bear the consequences. I have a, I don't know what to call him, cousin-in-law. My wife's cousin, is that what it is? Okay, my cousin-in-law, he was a, uh, a teacher down in uh, Franklin, Tennessee for the last 28 years. He, he actually comes from, like his family has been in Franklin, Tennessee for six generations, and, and his ancestors were enslavers, right? And, and he has not only, he went to that high school, has taught at it for 28 years, and has been actively involved in the community, he started a ministry uh, calling people to repentance of this sin of racism, okay? And, uh, and, and you know, he's been doing this for, for many years. And then um, last year, he, uh, after the attack on the Capitol, January 6th, he, 
he posted something to the effect, not, not as a teacher, but as part of this ministry, that he, did, he was not fond of what happened at the Capitol, right? And the next thing he knows, there's a firestorm coming at him from the administration of this school he taught at. And they told him, you need to take that post down and never say anything like that again. And then they said, and also, you need to stop all this activity, talking about racism, talking about race, that stops now. They wanted him to be silenced. And they made it very clear that he could either keep his job and stay silent or continue to speak on this and lose his job. There was a consequence to be paid. I'm proud to say he paid it. He dealt with the consequences and stayed faithful. Following Jesus has always included consequences. Perhaps loss of reputation. For many, it can, it can be threats to physical safety around the world and throughout history. It can mean death. It can mean economic and social marginalization. It could mean getting canceled or piled on or whatever the stupid social media term is these days. <laughs> it could cause you to lose friends and be excluded. Right? Oh, well, we're going to go do this. We don't want that wet blanket Christian person around. For me, <laughs> this is, I'll be honest with you guys. Certain texts are offensive. It's easier not to preach them. Certain topics will get me a couple angry emails. Maybe someone leaves the church. I might get put up on woke pastors again. You guys ever heard of this thing? It's so sad I heard about this. Somebody told me. So it's this YouTube channel where they take pastors they consider woke. Imagine me, I'm like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president. Super woke, right? <laughs> And I said something they didn't like, so they put like a clip up and invite the commentators to, to like mock and revile and stuff like that. Um, you know, like, oh, if I say this, I might end up on woke pastures again. And I made the mistake of reading the comments. They were so not nice. <laughs> when I come to a text like that or a topic like that, it's easier to give it a miss. Just move on to something that everybody likes. But following Jesus, being faithful to Jesus means there's consequences that come with it, okay? The early church is given exactly that choice in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So they can't, they can't keep them in jail. They can't torture or execute them because they're very, very popular right now. They had done a high-profile miracle, but they're like, 
but we have to stop this. So they give them the ultimatum. Don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore, or else remember what happened to Jesus. Yes, you have the hope of resurrection. I wouldn't much look forward to going through what the Lord went through, would you? That would intimidate me. So they go back to their people. Look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now this is a point of tension. If you've never heard this story before, you're, as a hearer, you're saying, what's going to happen? What are they going to do? Are they going to say, okay, well, we can keep worshiping Jesus privately, quietly. We had, it was fun <laughs> when we could go out and preach about it. But now the heavies have laid their foot down and we need to stop. There's consequences to this. We might end up in jail. We might end up tortured. We might end up dead, crucified. And you can imagine Peter and John telling them this. Hey, if we, if we go out and preach about Jesus, then, then there's going to be consequences. And you can imagine everybody getting quiet. But then, a voice starts to be lifted. And another voice joins it. And look at, what they, look at how they respond in verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they start singing Psalm 2 together, a psalm that, that talks about how the nations oppose God and his Messiah. They're like, God called this. We saw this coming. And then look at, how they, look at what they do. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Okay, I love this part. I, I, I just, this verse blows me away. So they say, they say, hey, it was foretold we'd face opposition. Remember Herod, remember Pilate, the people who put the Lord on the cross. Look at what it, what it says they did. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What did Herod and Pontius Pilate do? They crucified Jesus. But wait, they were just doing what God had planned and predestined to take place. These opponents of God are what? Tools of God. God is sovereign over opposition. You see the first thing they said? They said, sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth, he's in charge. They quote Psalm 2, and then they say, and by the way, this what looked like catastrophe, Jesus going to the cross to everybody else was actually God's hand at work through his opponents. So, so let's, let's just take that principle and apply it. Some of the darkest points in history are what? God, God is still sovereign over his opposition, using his opposition. Herod and Pilate, what did they accomplish? What God wanted them to. He's sovereign over them. What did Nero and Marcus Aurelius and Septimius Severus and Decius and Julian the Apostate, what did, you might know, they all persecuted the church, okay, big time. What did they accomplish? 
God is sovereign over them. They accomplished what God wanted them to. Mao, Stalin, Kim Jong-il, what did they accomplish in their opposition to God and his church? God is sovereign over them. Strom Thurmond, Bull Connors, and George Wallace, what did they accomplish? Only what God allowed them to. God is sovereign over his opposition. Yes, consequences are intimidating, but God is sovereign over that. God even uses his opposition to accomplish his plan. God is sovereign over opposition. So God is, is not hindered by opposition. He empowers us through opposition, and he's sovereign over opposition. And look at what that leads to. Look at the response it leads to in verse 29. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants what? Safety. No. To continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They don't ask for safety. They don't ask for success. You know what they ask for? Give us the courage. Look on their threats. See what's going to happen to us. Yes, we'll go to the cross like Jesus. Yes, we'll go to the lions. Yes, we'll go to the jails. You see that, Lord? Okay, we trust you. We're going to keep speaking boldly. You keep doing the signs. And God at the end, right, the place shakes and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's God's way of saying amen. Deal. Because God isn't hindered by opposition. He empowers through opposition and he's sovereign over opposition. We need to stay faithful through opposition. When you come face to face with those moments where it's a lot easier to succumb, where it's a lot easier to let it go by. Now, am I saying you need to go out and make a public nuisance of yourself so you could face some opposition? You know, I'm at Banana Republic. If I jumped up on this counter and started shouting out Romans 3, I'd face opposition. That's not, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you're in that conversation and you feel the risk of this, this person who's spiritually searching, right? I know they need Jesus. I know that they need to hear the gospel, that you would actually dare to do so. Yeah, you're scared that they're going to be offended. You're scared that, that you're going to be rejected. You're scared it's going to cut off the relationship. The, we, we still, you need to stay faithful. You're, you're teaching the Bible, right? And you come across one of those texts, like maybe next week, Ananias and Sapphira, not my favorite to preach. I'm going to preach it. It's easier to give it a miss. When you're forced to sign a statement that violates your conscience or get fired. It means taking the consequence and being faithful when it's a lot easier just to quickly sign it and move on. We need to stay faithful through opposition. One of the great, uh, one of the great examples of this is, is one of my sheroes, Fannie Lou Hamer. There's Fannie Lou. Fannie Lou Hamer, um, not the person you'd think would become like a hero. 
But she was, uh, she was born in the 30s, a Mississippi sharecropper, right? Like, not high-end education or anything like that. She was just farming. But she loved Jesus, and, and her church got involved with the human rights movement, right, under, under Dr. King and the SCLC. And, uh, and she, when she heard about this and she heard what their plan was, she jumped in both feet. She, she really found a purpose. And she especially was active in getting women registered to vote. And this took a lot. If you've ever seen any of the movies of this, this was a complicated process to navigate for them. And so she, she, she would take women by the busloads, right, to train them on how to do this and then go get them registered. She was doing exactly this one night. And on the way back to the church, the bus got pulled over. Police came on and arrested everyone on it. And they drove all the women out to a jail far out in the country. And they put them all in individual cells. And Fannie Lou Hamer listened in terror as one by one coming down the hall she was hearing the other women beaten. And then they came into her cell. And four men came in and said, we're going to make you wish you were dead. And they proceeded to beat her with clubs over every inch of her body. So badly that she couldn't really walk, walk right for two years because of the swelling and bruising. Their goal was obvious. They wanted to shut her up. Here's some opposition to shut you up, right? You do this again, and you get worse. Their goal, if their plan, was to intimidate Fannie Lou Hamer into shutting up. They forgot one thing, Fannie Lou Hamer. <laughs> that night, in the middle of the night in that jail, Fannie Lou struggled over to the bars, and in the silence of the jail cell, now Fannie Lou was in her church choir, had a huge voice. If you ever want a treat, just go on Spotify. Her music is up there, no joke. You can check it out. And she started to sing out a hymn into the middle of the night. Paul and Silas was bound in jail, let my people go. Had no money for to go to their bail, let my people go. Paul and Silas began to shout, let my people go. Jail doors opened and they walked out. Let my people go. When she was released the next day, she looked right at the men who had beaten her and asked them, have you ever thought about what is going to happen when you come face to face with God? Not only did they not shut her up, but she actually went forward on Capitol Hill some months later, still unable to walk. And she gave, where this picture is from, she gave one of the most powerful testimonies on a day of testimony that is widely credited with, with changing the hearts and minds of Americans so that, so that the, uh, the Voting Rights Act is passed through opposition. She was not silenced. It would have been a lot easier not to do what she did. But she stayed faithful through opposition. 